You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. According to their own ungodly desires, these people create divisions and are worldly, not having the spirit. But you, dear friends, as you build yourselves up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God waiting expectantly for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ for eternal life. Have mercy on those who waver. Save others by snatching them from the fire. Have mercy on others, but with fear, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. Now to him who is able to protect you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory without blemish and with great joy to the only God our Saviour through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory, majesty, power and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. Thanks, Marius. Please leave that open. It's the letter of Jude. If you're here last week, you would have been with us as we went through the first two-thirds of that letter, and if you weren't here, just go again to the website. You can find uh, some resources on more about Jude, a study guide, and last week's message as well. Um, If I haven't met you, my name's Jonathan. I'm the pastor here. I'm the one going away for a couple of weeks. I appreciate that fake... What's that called? A sigh? Groan? I always say to young people that if, um, if you don't know exactly what you want to do after high school, if you don't know for sure that you want to go to university or take up a trade or get a job or whatever, then you ought to take a year or more, maybe one to three years, just to um, work and travel and learn a little bit more about how the world works. And partly I say that because, um, because I did it. So my, 20 years ago now, um, I took three years off and just traveled. I think I worked close to 20 different jobs, the express purpose of earning quick money to travel, to pay for my travel. And even then, my dad, who's likely watching this right now, probably wants it to be known that he funded most of it, and uh, I still, still owe him. Um, but uh, this, this is the golden age of travel. I don't know how it would go these days, but 20 years ago, I had, like, there was no social media. I didn't have a phone. I don't even think I had an email account. There was no way of me getting in touch with everyone back here unless I could pay $20 a minute on a phone card um, to make a quick call. And so it was great. It was a great thing for an 18, 19-year-old kid just to be thrown out in the world and, and, and kind of sink or swim. My third year of that time, after travelling around a bit overseas, was to travel around Australia. I took three uh, friends um, and we bought this old Mazda camper van um, that bit, could barely move on its own. Um, but we took that and we travelled around Australia. We went right up to the very north of Australia. As soon as we got past a certain uh, longitude, we had to, uh, to keep the, the car going. We had to have the heater running constantly, like the exhaust um, heater to stop it from overheating. So, so our experience of travelling through the north part of Australia was essentially just like losing lots and lots of weight, just through sheer dehydration, and the fact that we didn't have any money for food. So we had a ration of two apples per day per man, 
and whatever else we could find, roadkill or whatever, along the way, which turned out to be quite a lot of stuff, actually, but it was at least two apples. And um, anyway, so that was the plan, and that's how it went, and it was lots of fun. We uh, had a, a various um, <laughs> brushes with death along the way, one of which was um, about, I think, about 400 kilometres south of Darwin, there's this area um, called Mataranka Springs, I think there's Berry Springs, Bitter Springs, a whole bunch of just beautiful thermal springs that tourists go to to swim in, and we were particularly keen to do this because we were running the heater in our damn van the whole time, um, trying to stop it from overheating, and it was terribly hot. Uh, so wherever we could find water to stop and jump in, we would do that. We did it in this occasion outside of the um, sort of main tourist area. We found a river. There was a little waterfall, um, and just it was just a delightful scene. No one else there, and so we jumped out of the van straight into the water, swam there happily for I don't know, seemed like hours, and then on the way back to the van, which was parked sort of up on a ridge. We were walking back up this hill and happened to look back down at the area of the river where we had been swimming and noticed to our kind of shock and horror that there are these large dark shapes all over the, the river in the form of saltwater crocodiles, enormous man-eating saltwater crocodiles, which we had, not, like, we had no idea they were there the whole time, obviously. Uh, if we had been German tourists, we would have been eaten for sure. And... Um, and so, I don't know, it was just but for the grace of God, right? So, th that experience of um, coming to terms with, coming to the realisation of the very real threat that we had just been kind of swimming amongst kind of makes me think of the book of Jude. Jude operates as a kind of um, perspective giver for the church because Jude, in his letter, reveals a whole bunch of threats that otherwise we probably wouldn't realize were there. If you read through the book of Jude, you might have the experience that, that I've had regularly reading through it. First of all, I like it, not just because it's really short, um, but also because it's to the point, it's direct. Um, but it also, it, it's easy to read it and think, it seems a bit melodramatic. Like, he gets really worked up in a short period of time. He, and he speaks with really colourful poetic language about the threat that exists in the church that he's writing to. It's a little melodramatic. It's a little bit kind of over the top, you might think, but I think that's the purpose of it. It reveals something to us about the nature of the threat that, that lives among us in the church, both in Jude's time and in every time since then up until now. I do remember thinking that the signs at, well, I don't know, the river that we were swimming in about saltwater crocodiles being present and, you know, the danger of swimming in them, I do remember thinking that was a little bit over the top as well. But warnings often come across as being melodramatic. The point is that they're meant to reveal to us the truth of our situation and that's one of the functions of the book of Jude. So last week... We had revealed to us in very colourful language, again, the, the threat of false teachers in the early church. This is like the very earliest church. The book of Jude is probably potentially the earliest New 
Testament book that we have. It was written right, right on the ground at the time of the church, having just sort of been given birth. Judas here as Jesus' half-brother, a new convert himself, um, writing to a church about the very real and present danger. Some of us are in the habit of thinking, oh, if only we could go back to the early church, that we would just have such a much better experience of church together. Because the early church, we think, is like a newborn baby, born innocent and pure, and then it's gotten really bad over the years. Well, no, actually, from the very beginning, the church has had its fair share of troubles, including the presence of false teachers and false gospels. So, with that in mind, let's jump in to where Marios began, verse 17 to 19. This is what he says, in contrast to those false teachers, in contrast to those men and women who had the express purpose of distorting the truth and divorcing God's people away from the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints, he says, but you, dear friends... But you remember what was predicted by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They told you, in the end time, there will be scoffers living according to their own ungodly desires. These people create divisions and are worldly, not having the Spirit. There's a lot of talk at the moment about whether we're in the end times because, you know, Russia's invading Ukraine and there's a whole pandemic, you know, still going on, it turns out, and... Like, we're on the brink of one of the great periods of depression as far as economics, like global economics go. There are famines and there is global warming and there's all kinds of threats to civilization. And so there's a lot of talk, among Christians at least, about maybe this is the end times, maybe Jesus is about to come back. And the answer to that question is yes, it is indeed the end times. We know this for a fact because... All the times since Jesus' ascension are the end times. Like all the times. Every minute of every day since Jesus ascended to the Father and gave birth to the church up until now have been the end times. This is the way that the New Testament talks about the end times. They're all the times. All the times from Jesus' ascension to his second coming. And so he wants to remind us, and he's speaking to us as those who live in the end times. He's he's like, remember, the apostles told us about this. It's kind of reassuring in a way. This hasn't come as a surprise. Yes, this is a threat, but we know this. We've been told this. Last week, he took us to the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, to show us how these things were predicted and these things were dealt with in the past, and now he's saying, well, listen, it's going to be this way all through until Jesus comes again. In the end times, there will be scoffers living according to their own ungodly desires. What do they do? They create division. They're worldly. They don't have the spirit. They're not Christians. They just pretend to be. They're wolves in sheep's clothing, to use Jesus' language. So he doesn't want us to be kind of shocked by the fact that these people are among us. You remember Paul 
speaking to the Ephesian church in Acts chapter 20. He's one of the apostles that Jude refers to who have warned us about these people, these false teachers. Paul in Acts 20 says this, it'll be on the screen. He says, be on your guard. Remember we said alert, but not alarmed. Conscious of the threat, alert to it, eyes open. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock for which the Holy Spirit has appointed you as overseers to shepherd the church of God which he had purchased with his own blood. That's why we call our leaders pastors. Overseers, shepherds, pastor means Shepherd, this is a big part of their job, is to be on guard, to be alert to the danger. He goes on, I know that after my departure, Paul departing from Ephesus, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Men will rise up even from your own number and distort the truth to lure the disciples into following them. He goes on, therefore, be on the alert. Remembering that night and day for three years, I never stopped warning each of you with tears. Again, is this melodramatic? Jude with his poetic language, Paul with his tears day and night for three years. It's either very melodramatic and emotionally unhinged, or it's just a recognition of the very real and present danger. The first church, in the first years of the church, right up until this church in Caroline Springs in 2022, all of us, all of the churches from then till now have shared the same vulnerability. We've been warned about it, we've been alerted to the danger, and so we need to live in a way that takes into account this reality. Be on your guard. Be alert. This is why you have pastors in the church. This is why you have leaders and elders in the church. We're meant to be here to keep our eyes open for these kinds of threats. And if you think maybe this is, again, a little bit melodramatic and not something that would happen here in 21st century Caroline Springs, then I'm happy to correct you. We've had situations in this very church in the last 10 years that I've been here that have called for this kind of shepherding response. I'm not talking about people who have come into this church with slightly different ideas, slightly different theology. Of course, there's always going to be people in our church with different ideas. That's part of what makes our church so wonderful. We have this very eclectic, multicultural, multi-generational group of people, and after the service today, I expect there will be some conversation in the foyer in disagreement with what I've been saying here this morning, and that's all healthy and good, challenging things and not just receiving things by rote, jug to mug. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about situations where we've had people in here with the express purpose of leading people away from gospel truth undermining authority, the authority of the leaders, luring disciples away to following them rather than following Jesus, who's our chief shepherd. 
We've had those situations. I hate those situations. I'm not someone who loves confrontation, but having to confront, I mean, the only response you can have to a wolf who is looking to eat your sheep is to be one of confrontation, right? There's no lying down with wolves and petting them. They need to be shown off. I know in Australia we're not huge fans of authority, hierarchy, but God has made, has given authority to the church because he loves the church. He's made certain people shepherds and overseers because he cares for his sheep. This is a threat in Jude's day. It was a threat in Paul's day. It is a threat in our day. So what can we do? What can you do? What can you do to help cultivate the kind of church, the kind of pasture that protects the sheep and guards against the wolves. What can you do? Well, it turns out Jude thinks you can do at least four things. Let's take a look at those. This is in verse 20 to 21. He says, You, dear friends, as you build yourselves up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting expectantly for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ for eternal life. Four things there. Building, praying, keeping, waiting. At least four things that everyone in this congregation here this morning, if you are following Jesus, at least four things that you can do to make this church the kind of pasture, the kind of paddock where the sheep are strengthened and the wolves are kept at bay. So let's take a look at each of those things, all right? First of all, you got building in verse 20. Build yourselves up in your most holy faith. He said, remember verse 3? The reason that he wrote this letter in the first place was to appeal to the church to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Contend. We saw last week, that's another word for wrestle or fight. There's something active going on there. Contending is similar to building. Build yourselves up in your most holy faith. We were talking about this in our family. Um, I don't know if it was yesterday or Friday we were talking about this in the uh, with Renee and India and Judah about building your faith up and what, what that might look like. Like, what can you do to build up your faith? It's a little bit sort of um, hard to grasp. You know how you can build your body up. You go to the gym like some of you guys do and lift weights. The resistance strengthens your muscles and you grow your muscles. Our culture loves spending lots of time and money on building up 
bodies, how do you build up faith? So we were talking about that and kids had some suggestions about how to do that and India had an interesting analogy that she drew between building up faith and building up to be able to do something she's working on at the moment. She's working on being able to do an aerial. Hey, India, I'm going to do a bad job of this. Can you just run up the front and tell us what, what this is about? So I put you on the spot, but you're a pastor's kid, so. All right, so. Can you just tell, can you just tell us what's an uh, aerial and how, how do you... What were you telling us about how to, you're sort of building up to do that? Um, well, an aerial is pretty much a no-handed cartwheel. A no-handed cartwheel, yeah. Yeah, and I was talking about, like, you have to build up to your faith, like you build up, like, the steps to doing an aerial. So, um, say, for instance, the steps are, you probably start off with a really terrible cartwheel, and then you get your cartwheel, and then you can go to one-handed cartwheels. Um, and then you can do this really cool thing, how you can go into a cartwheel and take off your hands, or go no hands and then go into your cartwheel. And then that builds you up to getting your aerial. Um, and once you've completed all those steps, then you've got your aerial. All right. Should I just do one just to show them? You can. I'm not, I'm not going to be able to no. do it? Is that, so what, what, why would I not be able to do an aerial? Just because you haven't practiced and you haven't oh. done the steps. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, okay, sure, sure. Saved me there. So thank you, India, for sharing that with us. So, okay. Yeah. I mean, I probably could do it, um, but just got the wrong shoes. So anyway, so, so th that's the point, right? Like building our faith up is not, this happens so often to us as Christians. We, we tend to do the kind of um, faith that's set and forget. We love set and forget things, right? It's like, it's like the, 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 the robotic vacuum idea. Like just faith is something you can just hit a button on and it'll take care of itself. Whereas in fact, and so what we do is we find ourselves in moments of crisis crises of faith and we go to exercise faith and where we, we it's like me trying to do an aerial right it's just a mess uh and as india said I, I can't do it because i haven't practiced i haven't built up to it the same is true of, of the exercise of faith what's required is a kind of daily regimen of building up if you want to see our house every single morning, I mean like every single morning from about 6 a.m., it's just India going up and down a hallway doing cartwheels. And, she, and, and, and this is it. Like she's, she's gone from the normal cartwheel to the, I think it's called a pop-off cartwheel, that, a no-hand cartwheel, I don't know, and then, and then, and then the one-handed one, right? And it's, just, and it's just daily regimen. This is the same thing. Build yourselves up in your most holy faith. It's going to require daily commitment, daily practice, daily exercise of faith. One of the things that you can do as part of that daily regimen is praying, he says, praying in the Holy Spirit. Some have taken this to mean 
uh, praying in tongues, and it might mean that for some of us, if you've been given the gift of tongues, it might mean praying in tongues, but given that the gift of tongues is not given to everyone and Jude is speaking to everyone, then it's fair to say that it's not only that, he's, I think he's just talking about praying, praying Jesus-type prayers, the kind that Jesus taught us that we saw in the Sermon on the Mount, right, are prayers in the Holy Spirit. They're prayers that are in line with God's will and His ways, His nature, His kingdom. Praying in the Holy Spirit. This probably, I'm sorry, this is, I know this is very boring in Sunday school, but this probably means saying your prayers in the morning and saying your prayers at night. That's probably what it looks like. Saying your prayers in the morning and saying your prayers at night. Coming to our monthly prayer meeting here on the last Monday night of the month and gathering with others to pray in the Spirit. That's probably what it looks like. I think a lot of us are stunted so much in our Christian growth, right? We, we want to be built up. We want to look like the rock when it comes to our faith, right? We, we want to be built up in that most holy faith, but rather than praying first thing in the morning and praying at night, we're scrolling first thing in the morning and scrolling the last thing at night. I think one of the best things you can do, I know this is going off piste a little bit, but the best thing you could do is just not have your phone next to your bed ever. Just do that. Do me a favour and do that. Just take the charger out of your bedroom so you can't charge your phone and without charging your phone you might not wake up in the morning. So you're never going to do that, right? So, so, So put it somewhere else and use that time that you spend reading, I don't know, with like, Instagram, scrolling or whatever, to, to pray. Pray in the Holy Spirit. I got this thing, right? I reckon, you know how we laugh at our grandparents and parents' generation for the way they smoked so much? Like they would like wake up in the morning and light up a cigarette, go on, go on an aeroplane and smoke, doctor's surgery, smoke with the doctor in the doctor's surgery, right? Like the way that we laugh at them, like, ah, idiots, always smoking. Smoking when they first woke up. Smoking went right before they went to bed. And that's how our grandkids are going to laugh at us with our, about our phones. Like they used to scroll first thing in the morning. Like they would wake up and just scroll. Idiots. They had no idea. It was destroying them. Yeah, I think that's what's going to happen. Listen. I know some of us will hope for greater things when it comes to prayer, praying all through the day, praying at every opportunity, right? Being in constant communion with God, these are great things to hope for. If you're not there yet, then just listen, just pray first thing in the morning. Pray the last thing you do at night. Come along to our monthly prayer meeting and see if you aren't built up in your most holy faith. Building, praying, keeping, right? This is actually the result of the other three. The result of building, praying, and waiting is that you are kept, kept in the love of God. 
kept in the love of God, kept right in that place that you know if you're a Christian, that you know and that you yearn for most of the time when you're not there. It's that place where you feel close, intimately close to God and walking closely with Him. You know what I mean. If you've experienced that, you know what I mean. It's like the best, the best time of your life. It's the thing that you're always wanting to get back to. Well, being kept in the love of God is a result of building and praying and waiting. Waiting expectantly for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ for eternal life. I think it's easy to think about waiting as if it's like this passive thing. Waiting is something I do when, you know, that makes me bored. Waiting is something I do when I have to, you know, when I'm, 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 I've made my fish and chips order or whatever. But here, this is, this is something you do. It's an active waiting. What does active waiting look for, like? Active waiting looks like, like your team's up by a point in the preliminary final and you know that the siren's going to go sometime soon. It's active. It's anticipatory. It's eager. That's what he's talking about. Right? Waiting expectantly for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's waiting for Jesus to come again. It's active waiting. And you can do the waiting thing passively, like, yeah, Jesus said he's coming back and it's been 2,000 years and whatever. I'm just going to get on with life and if he comes, that's great and if not, whatever. Or you can, or you can wait expectantly. To take it back to the phone thing, it's like being in the doctor's waiting room, you can either take the time as you're waiting for the doctor to um, anticipate the appointment you're about to have. Well, what are the things I need to tell him and what are the things I want to ask of him and you know, you prepare, you're expectant. When he comes, you're ready to go. Or you can spend the whole time, again, smoking, I mean scrolling, same thing. And you just, you'd, you'd, like the time that you're in that waiting room, it's just like drifting along. And there's no anticipation. There's no preparation. There's no expectation. It's the same with the Christian life. You can, you can drift or you can be expectant, waiting expectantly for the second coming of Jesus. Building, praying, waiting will serve the purpose of keeping you in the love of God. Now, it's interesting he says there that we're waiting not for the judgment or the condemnation, but for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we're waiting for. I'm sure it's going to be very dramatic when it happens. The kind of picture and poetic language that the Bible gives us for the second coming is pretty intense. But for those of us trusting in Jesus, our experience of it will be one of mercy, one of deliverance, one of relief. And as we anticipate mercy, the mercy of Jesus, we are to show mercy to others. Have a look. Verse 22 to 23. Have mercy. Have mercy on those who waver. Save others by snatching them from the fire. Have mercy on others, but with fear, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. 
So there's those four things that we can do for ourselves and then these three ways of, of, of interacting with others, other Christians in our community, in our church, in our wider community, in your networks, three ways of responding to those who are beginning to fall away. All of it is characterized by mercy. So, let's take a look. Three, three groups of people. First of all, those who waver. Have mercy on those who waver. In the context of what he's writing about, it's likely those who are starting to entertain that maybe those guys who are saying that, that other thing about Jesus, that other thing about the gospel, who are offering a different kind of perspective or approach or a different kind of gospel, maybe, maybe there's something to that. You know, I've, I've had this faith for so long now, I'm kind of looking for something fresh. They're wavering, they're, they're entertaining a different kind of gospel, something that will lead to their destruction. He says, for those who are wavering, show mercy. To those who are dabbling in that new age philosophy or that Eastern religion or whatever it is, respond with mercy. The best way to respond with mercy to others is to acknowledge first and foremost that you have been shown mercy yourself. This works for forgiveness, for, I mean for all kinds of love. So show mercy to those who are just kind of wavering, just kind of flirting with this other way of thinking, this other way of being. Second of all, save others by snatching them from the fire. Save others by snatching them from the fire. The fire is a metaphor, most certainly for Jude, is a metaphor of condemnation, judgment. He says there are those in the church who, are so, who have wavered for so long, who have flirted for so long with other saviors, other gods, other religions, other ways of thinking and being in the world, that they are now in danger of fire, now in danger of condemnation. When Jesus comes again, it's not mercy that they'll experience, but judgment. And to them, he says, snatch them. Like you need to see them the, the way that, the, with the eyes of faith. You need to see them in a burning building and no one who loves another human being would leave someone to suffer in a burning building, right? What do we do? We respond now. Snatch. Snatch them, right? It's a active right now this must be done, it's urgent. Save others by snatching them from the fire. Just because it's urgent and dramatic doesn't mean it's not loving, merciful. Have mercy on those who waver, save others by snatching them from the fire. Have mercy on others but with fear hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. So these, these are people that you know who perhaps were Christians at some point or would still call themselves Christians, but they're so mired in ungodly living 
They're so overwhelmed by idolatry, sinfulness, selfishness, moral bankruptcy, that your response is still to have mercy, but it's got to be mixed with fear. Like, I am going to go after this person. I am going to be like Jesus leaving the 99 for the sake of the one. I'm going to go to them and, and woo them and, and, and encourage them, challenge them and, and love them back into the fold. But as I'm doing it, I'm going, to, I'm going to have some measure of fear because I don't want to go the same way as them. This is probably, you know, we have this saying in the church, like you got to hate this, hate the sin, but love the sinner. This is probably like the most biblical version of that. You love someone enough to have mercy on them in the first place, but you hate the sin so much that even the garment that's devoured by the flesh, that is even just anything that's part of that, 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 that fallen, broken, sinful, rebellious, ill-disciplined, ungodly world is something that you hate. I know some people who do, whose like whole ministry in life is to go into the most dark, devilish places you can imagine to minister to people there. Like the, you know, the, the places you don't want to think about. This is their verse. Have mercy on them. See them as image bearers of God, even in the midst of the, the, the darkness See them as people for whom Jesus died, people for whom God loves and and wants to save, but hate. Hate what's going on there. Hate hate the garment, but love the garment wearer. Hate the sin, but love the sinner. I mean, the point is overwhelming the message for each of us as we do this ministry of loving those who are wavering or who are threatened by condemnation or are in the midst of darkness, the disposition of the Christian going after those people is one of mercy and patience and love, gentleness. There's nothing here that looks anything like keyboard warrior, like debating online. Like I, there's nothing here. You look at the ministry of Jesus, there's, there's no, there's, like he's the anti-keyboard warrior. If you have found yourself just over time through lack of accountability and giving in to selfishness, if you found yourself like your major ministry that you participate in each week is telling people off online, Repent. Stop wasting your time. This is a particular sin of young dudes, all right? Young men who have got like a few doctrines under their belt and suddenly they're like winning the world for Jesus by arguing online. It's nonsense. It's not just keyboards, it's conversations as well. Some of us just feel like this is our calling. 
we will, you know, we will argue people into the kingdom. Or we will, you know, if someone starts wavering, you know, we heard that there was someone in our church and, 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 and he's sleeping with his girlfriend now, so now it's my job to go and tell him what's what, right? And I'm going to drag him back. And, and that kind of disposition is so far from the mercy and patience and love and gentleness described here, I can see, I, I mean, I think it's re- the, the, the heart behind it is redeemable. The desire for people not to fall away is admirable, godly, but the means by which it's done matters. Listen to this. This is a word to the keyboard warriors, all right? Paul, again, to uh, his, little, his, his little protege, Timothy. He says this, 2 Timothy 2, don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments. <laughs> that should be your life first, all right, some of you? Don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments because you know they produce quarrels. Just describe social media. The Lord's servant must not quarrel. Instead, he must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Those who oppose him, he must gently instruct in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth. Kind, gentle, merciful. I think probably Paul and Jesus before him, Jude as well, just all of these guys, right? The Bible itself just looks at so much of that interaction online and it's just, there's just this enormous eternal eye roll. Like, ugh. (laughs) No friends. Let me repeat it. Have mercy on those who waver. Save others by snatching them from the fire. Have mercy on others, but with fear, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. So yes, we must do. This is not set and forget Christianity. There is no such thing. If you're not growing, you're dying. If you're not moving forward, then you're falling away. There are things we must do. We must always be doing. And yet, I love it, so reassuring that Jude very deliberately, I think, bookends his whole letter with two great, beautiful, poetic, brilliant, wonderful statements of the sovereignty of God over all these things. This is the reason that we ought to be alert but not alarmed. Jesus is on the throne. Let me remind you, verse 1, he said this, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who are called, loved by God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. In verse 2, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Those who are called and loved and kept past, present, future. 
We're in Jesus' hand, and as he said in John, is it chapter 10? No one can snatch anyone out of his hand. And he concludes in the same vein with some of the most beautiful words in Scripture. Let me just read them for you. I don't even need to say very much about them. They speak for themselves, verse 24 to 25. Now, having said all of this, opening your eyes to a very real and present danger, pleading with you to do a bunch of stuff that's really super eternal important now to him who is able to protect you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory. Think about that for more than three seconds and you'll be blown away. Make you stand in the presence of his glory without blemish and with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, power, and authority before all time, now and forever, past, present, future. Amen. Why is it in the face of all of these threats and the very real danger we're only sheep and these guys are wolves, right? There's eternal fire in the mix. There's urgency, there's anticipation, there's expectation, in the, there's sirens. In the midst of these last days, why is it that we can rest assured this morning with a smile on our face? enjoying the joy of the Lord. Why? Because Jesus has glory and majesty and power and authority. And he's our king. He's our savior. He's our friend. He's our brother. We're with him. Praise God. Let me pray for us. Thank you, Lord our God, Heavenly Father, for giving us these words through your servant, Jude. We thank you for him. Thank you for his faithfulness. Thank you for his perseverance. Thank you for his leadership of the early church. Thank you for his letter. I pray that you would use it. Lord God, to exhort us, Encourage us, reprove us, rebuke us, correct us, to train us in righteousness, to encourage us and reassure us that you are with us and you are for us from now until the day you come in glory. And Lord Jesus, we ask you, please come. Please come soon. Please come now. Please make all things new. Please come to us in mercy and love. We pray in your name. Amen.